every patient that I care for is like taking care of my own child. My name is Candy, and I'm a nursing assistant at Lifespan. He's a handsome boy. I've been working in the PICU for 10 years. I love the miracles that we see. It's so rewarding. You know, the families that we get to help, they put their child in our hands. We have to be there to support them and take care of them, deliver health with care. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Yeah, I know, Dow. From day one, she was an absolute disaster. But if you ask my parents, since day one, I was an absolute disaster. <laughs> so she just needed someone to love her. And that's the way she was able to shine. Patinkin is the paper's longest serving and most prominent writer. You have been at the Providence Journal since when? Oh, are you going to make me say this? I'm going to make you say it. I think it was the FDR administration <laughs> when I started. But it's been 45 plus years. 45 years. I don't know how that happened. I did come here in 1976 and uh, they made me a columnist a few years later at age 26, I think. It was far too soon. Good evening and welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm David Wright. I'm Pamela Watts. Rhode Island State Police have an elite unit of canines who assist with everything from tracking drugs to finding missing persons. Our first story tonight is about one of those elite members. Ruby was an 11-year-old pup who in the last two years of her life received applause from people around the world. Sadly, last week, right before we were to go to air, Ruby suddenly became ill and had to be euthanized. But when we met her just a few weeks ago, she was still hard at work. Ruby's story was implausible. A shelter dog who got a new lease on life when she began working with the Rhode Island State Police and a new partner. Okay, ready? Ruby is always on duty. Ready? Witness the evidence. Good girl! Yeah! She is an active member of the Rhode Island State Police Canine Unit. Very active. As you can see, she doesn't stop. Does not stop. And there's no off switch. Right through. The hardworking 11-year-old Australian sheepdog Border Collie mix is wired to protect and serve. Oh, that's a good girl. But she started out in the pen. Hi, baby. Hi. Hi. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not taking you anywhere, but I'll give you a treat. How's that? Her tail began here in 2011. Okay, baby, let's At go. the SPCA let's in East in. Providence, where volunteer Patricia Inman was called in to teach five-month-old Ruby some manners. Good girl. Much like she's doing with this pound pup. What was it about her that made her so unadaptable? Yeah, well, uh, counter-surfing, uh, biting the leash, um, never stopping. She just kept moving the entire time. Busy, busy, busy. Way too busy for most people. But you saw something in her. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, you could just see the wheels turning. You know, she was just really, really smart. And again, just really like, hey, you know, your best friend. Hi, how are you? You know, come and take me out. Ruby was adopted out, then relinquished every time. How many times was she brought back? Five, I believe. Yeah, five. She was supposed to be euthanized that day. Miraculously, 
Ruby received an 11th hour pardon from death row. The shelter learned Rhode Island State Police needed some new blood in the canine department. Inman, despite some doubts, lobbied to save Ruby. Okay, so you never pictured her as a service dog, but did you believe in her? Oh, absolutely. I knew she'd have a good place somewhere where she had a job and a relationship, someone who was really going to take the time with her to do things with her, work with her, you know, spend the time. I knew she, she definitely could thrive in that sort of environment. So she's a mix of two herding breeds, which, again, busy, 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 busy. They need a job. They need a job with a person. Yeah, I know. Down. And her person turned out to be Rhode Island State Corporal Dan O'Neill. Nice job. Yeah. Who says he understood his new partner because he was a lot like her. From day one, she was an absolute disaster. But if you ask my parents, since day one, I was an absolute disaster. <laughs> so she just needed someone to love her. And that's the way she was able to shine. You know, I might not be the most athletic, or I might not be able to run the fastest, or I might not be the best academic person, but I'll give you 100% every time. Turn, turn, good girl, turn, there you go, down, good girl. Giving it their all to pass the exam and join the canine unit meant hours of obstacle course training and search and rescue drills. Do you come out here often? Uh, every day we will come out here and just do something to get some of her energy. Finally, their careers were unleashed. Remarkable Ruby rose from underdog to top dog. She made the team, and Corporal O'Neill realized his long-held dream of being on the canine force. One thing the world was soon to discover is that Ruby is a diamond in the rough. Oh, good girl. Canine unit. Best of the best. I'm going to be one of those guys with one of those dogs. That's because Netflix made a movie about the dynamic duo. Ruby! The recently released Rescued by Ruby. As reenacted in the film, Ruby and Corporal O'Neill were assigned the case of a lifetime. Find a 17-year-old boy lost in a wooded area of rural Rhode Island. He'd been missing for 36 hours, and his parents feared the worst. Get to work. Come on. As intense as the movie portrays it, it can't compare to what really happened. So we're out searching for hours, like hours, and it's hot, you know, and all of a sudden she gets to this ridge and boom, gone. Goes right down the hill. I can see her running through the woods and all of a sudden she takes a right. So I go running down the hill and I come around and I take a right and there's a pair of boots right on the ground. And I was like, oh my God. And they're attached to legs and I can see a young boy that's laying face down in the woods. And Ruby's sitting over him like this looking down on him. I'm like, I'm like, oh, good girl, good girl. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, please, please. So I'm like, good girl. So she's looking at me, so she starts barking. So I'm like, okay, all right, all right, good girl. So I look at him and, and I can still feel it today. And, I, and I'm like, oh, please, please. So his hands are all stiff and he's got stuff all over his mouth. He's got stuff all on his nose and his ears. His eyes are shut. And I was like, oh no, please. So I put my, my uh, fingers on his carotid and I was like, I was like oh my God. I can feel a little bit of a pulse. I was like, oh my God, he's alive. So I get on my radio, Ruby comes over. She starts licking all of his orifice. She starts licking everything. And she's like literally trying to revive him. And I didn't tell her to do it either because I was trying to fiddle with my radio and my GPS. So I'm like, all right, good girl, good girl. And she's licking, licking, licking. So I was like, uh, 223 to 185, which is my boss. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I got him, I got him. 
And all of a sudden I see the chief of the police department, chief of the fire department and all the rescuers, they came in through the woods. I was like, come on. And they come over and they're like, and they were so happy, you know, because they, they were like, oh my God, you know, and they, they turned him over and they put him on the backboard and he really, he, he started, started to open his eyes and I was like, oh my God. So I started, I was starting to cry because I was like, Ruby, you did, you did what exactly what I told you to do. And um, yeah, it was like, it was just awesome. I mean, you just have this dog that just saved his life, you know. Corporal O'Neill was given the honor of telling the boy's mother the good news. It was, that was probably the worst day of my life, absolutely. And um, then uh, one of the Gloucester police had come up, driving up, and I ran outside without my shoes on or anything. He said, we got him. Wait, back up a minute. Ruby found the teenage son of her former champion, Patricia Inman? Yes, in a twist stranger than fiction, the dog whose life she spared had just saved her young son. She knew he was alive. You know, I didn't. <laughs> you know, but that's why she kept barking. A life for a life. Just completely overwhelmed. I mean, sobbing, you know, the whole thing. Everyone, everyone was sobbing. I'm going to sob now. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was just unbelievable. I said, he's, I think he's going to be all right. And she's like, what? And I said, yeah, my search and rescue dog found, found your son. And so she starts to cry. And she, so I started to cry again. And, and she goes, oh, my God. She goes, do you know a dog named Ruby? Look how smart you are. Try this Corporal O'Neill and Inman okay. had never met before. And I said, that was the dog that just saved your son's life. And she's like, what? And so she started to cry even more. And I was like, yeah, Ruby. I just said, you know, thank you, thank you. So she hugged me again. She's like, thank you for saving my son. I said, don't thank me. I said, thank Ruby. I said, you never gave up on her, and this is her way of saying thanks. And what went through your head at that moment? At that moment, I, I was like, this is like a divine intervention. I was like, this, there was a reason why I've done everything in my life. I said, there's a reason why I'm here. There's a reason why I have this dog that's been driving me crazy for six years. I said, there's a reason why, you know, there's a reason for everything. And in 2018, Ruby was chosen as the American Humane Society's Search and Rescue Hero of the Year in a posh Hollywood ceremony. This producer comes up to me and he hands me a business card. He goes, you're a great guy. That's a great dog. This is an awesome story. I want to make a movie about you. The movie has been viewed by millions and is one of the most watched on Netflix this year. Come on. Come on. The pair hear from viewers all over the world. It shows in this movie that if you don't give up, your dreams will come true. And it shows that if, if you don't give up on a dog, they can change your world. And the same can be said of Ruby, <coughs> who didn't give up on humans. She was, a, she was a shelter dog and then she became a trooper. But she doesn't get a pension. <laughs> but however, she gets the un unconditional love that I'll forever give it to her. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> and we have no doubt Corporal O'Neill made good on his promise to Ruby. While any pup will have a tough time replacing her, before she died, Ruby was helping to train her replacement, another shelter dog, Coda, seen here with Corporal O'Neill. The Rhode Island State Police put out a statement Sunday after Ruby passed saying... She became a symbol of hope for all shelter dogs, showing the world what a shelter dog can do when just given love and the chance to shine.
Well, we turn now to someone who's brought us his perspective on the top stories of Rhode Island for more than four decades. Mark Patinkin joined the staff of the Providence Journal in 1976. His byline has featured prominently ever since. Apart from those first few years, he's been a columnist, someone who writes in his own voice. And that voice is now an authority on all things Rhode Island. He's been a keen observer of the state's evolution for nearly half a century. Patinkin is one of the nation's longest-serving newspaper columnists. We sat down with him on the eve of a new honor, recognizing his work. Thank you for sitting down with us. Sure. I'm glad that we were able to get this in this week before you go behind bars. <laughs> you saw that. I that, saw that. Uh, my, my upcoming indictment. Yes. I, Scott Malloy. Hereby induct you, Mark Patinkin. This month, Providence Journal columnist Mark Patinkin became one of the newest members of the Rhode Island Heritage Hall of Fame. But his own newspaper flubbed the announcement of that honor. My past has caught up to me. That subheadline is supposed to say he'll be inducted this weekend. But the Providence Journal said uh, Mark Patinkin will be indicted this weekend. Your own newspaper. My own newspaper, so it has to be accurate. Patinkin is the paper's longest serving and most prominent writer. You have been at the Providence Journal since when? Oh, are you going to make me say this? I'm going to make you say I it. I think it was the FDR administration <laughs> when I started. But it's been 45 plus years. 45 years. I don't know how that happened. I did come here in 1976, and uh, they made me a columnist a few years later at age 26, I think. It was far too soon, and I was kind of a brat and a diva and finding my way, and I don't know how I've survived, but I've been at it that long. And then there's Rhode Island. He's one of the last men standing in a proud tradition of American journalism. Well, one Rhode Islander who should know told us the state feels like Rodney Dangerfield. It don't get no respect. The columnist has the grizzled voice of a place. Forty years ago, when ABC News did a story about the biggest little state in the Union, who do you think they turned to? Nobody realizes this, but Rhode Island declared independence two months before July 4th. No one noticed. Long before the Boston Tea Party, we burned down a British tax ship. Patinkin has long since traded in that old typewriter for a laptop, but he's the rare guy who's had essentially the same job since his 20s, and it's a great job, focusing on the life and times of this place. What Mike Barnacle was to Boston back in the day, or Jimmy Breslin to New York City, or Mike Royko in Chicago. Mark Patankin in Providence is that guy here. Yeah, I would never put myself in that company, but I grew up in Chicago. Come on, no, you're being falsely modest, I think. I grew up in Chicago, and Mike Royko was a... There's a, there's a special kind of beat there. Yeah, there aren't, the truth is there aren't a lot of columnists left in many medium-sized papers. I kind of see my role as trying to, um, trying to carry on the legacy of, 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 local, of, of a strong local voice or a local voice in the newspaper that, that um, brings some personality to the page, that has a point of view, that will maybe talk one day about corruption and politics and the next day about how my kids drive me crazy. But I would also say that my other role is, as just as a journalist, as a reporter, is to cover the uh, the, the the turf, and you know, 
I think the measure would be, and I hope, I hope I've succeeded, at least in some small way, to cover the story of Rhode Island in the last 40 years and how its rogues and, and aristocrats and neighbors and characters and institutions and, and the landscape itself has changed. He's one constant in more than four decades of change. A keen observer of changing trends. You've come in for a piercing? Uh, yes, I have. I'm getting my tongue pierced today. Are tongues popular these days? Um, quite. It's a very fun piercing. It's fun to play with in your mouth. It's kind of like having a piece of like hard candy in your mouth all the time. I have got to get some work done, and I will, just as soon as I figure out how to cruise the Internet. He's also traveled the world. In 1986, he was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize for a series of columns about religious violence in India, Lebanon, and the north of Ireland. But most of his focus has been right here in Rhode Island. And the city itself has changed. You know, it was a very different place. It was your classic kind of struggling, uh, fading industrial town. When I came here in the mid-70s, uh, I remember the one main hotel downtown, the Biltmore, was shuttered. And it was a uh, kind of a grim place downtown. But in many ways, Rhode Island hasn't changed at all. There's a little bit of an inferiority complex here. It's not, you know, we're not Boston, we're not New York. And so there's always been a feeling of, do we measure up? And so I think there's more of an inclination of people to be accepting of each other because there's not an arrogance. When Patinkin first joined the newspaper, it filled this building. Now the editorial staff occupies just one half of one floor. Like all newspapers everywhere, we're struggling to adjust to the times. So, uh, it, it, you know, we're not what we used to be. We get a lot of, we get a lot of readers telling us it's not what it used to be, but we're still a scrappy team doing our best. The, the ultimate, the most basic uh, uh, function of a newspaper or any news organization is, is uh, being a watchdog, uh, holding power to account and uh, there's not as much of that. We used to be in every town council, in every school committee meeting, holding power to account. Right. And, uh, and there just isn't the, there just isn't the, the advertising and subscriber dollars to support that anymore. Back in the day, Providence had a bit of a split personality, famous for two big institutions. On College Hill, there was Brown University, and on Federal Hill, there was the New England Mafia. Yeah, there's no way around the fact that there was a mobster Providence, and we ran Boston even. And it's kind of, I've always found it interesting that I think Rhode Islanders get a little shiver of pride to know that we were so prominent in that category that our mob was bigger than the Boston mob, so there. As a newsman, do you miss Buddy Cianci? I do miss Buddy Cianci. He was like a great story. You know, there's... I think he really belongs to the pantheon of American politicians like Huey Long down in Louisiana and others who had just this outrageously heightened personality. Mayor Buddy Cianci was good copy. The myth, we know. Yeah. But the guy you, you met and, and interacted with yeah. on numerous occasions. Yeah. You know, one way to kind of capture Buddy, there's so many ways to talk about him. This one was on the morning of his trial, uh, his second trial for corruption, where he knew he could be heading for uh, jail. I was with a crowd of reporters and kind of pushed through where he was eating at the Biltmore Hotel, and his uh, and he motioned to me. He said, yeah, come join me for breakfast. This is about to go to trial. And his lawyer was kind of freaking out. What is a journalist doing here when we're talking about 
trial strategy, but he wanted to be in the spotlight. Those were banner years for the Mafia here in Rhode Island. The end of Raymond Patriarca's reign, plus the rise and fall of Patriarca Jr. It wasn't kind of like the Godfather movie where it, it went from Don Corleone to Michael Corleone, and Michael was a, was a major force, I think. It's he was Fredo. <laughs> He may, I, I don't, should I say that on the air? <laughs> Are we going to get in a, trouble? We still enough, <laughs> is there still enough risk around here? But he certainly wasn't his father. But Which I, raises I, an interesting question. Is, <laughs> is, uh, is the mob gone? Or is it just kind it's of mostly gone. assimilated? Yeah, I think it's mostly gone. Mostly gone, but this is still rogues island. Is this place any more corrupt than New York City, Chicago? Uh, all of the cities that we know, you know, where corruption is rampant. Oh. Washington, D.C. Yeah, is Rhode Island more corrupt than, than those is other places? Absolutely. Come on. <laughs> Why do you think I'm stuck around as a journalist? Because it's so fun covering all that. You Google Mark Potankin. Yeah. And it doesn't say where you're born. Is it a dirty secret? It's, it's, not, a, it's not a dirty secret that I grew up in Chicago, but I will say that I, to this day, even though I was in Chicago for 18 years and I've been in Providence or I've been in Rhode Island for 45 or 46 years, I continue to be humbled and well aware that I am not a true native. And I have to wear a little bit of humility around that because I can't claim native roots. Because it's I that think you need a couple place. of generations for that, right? I think you do. I think you do. I think you need to have, be able to talk about where you went to grammar school and high school locally. Is that insularity of Rhode Island part of its charm or a barrier to its success? I think it is its charm. I think it is its charm. Because, you know, you go to some, some states and uh, a state like Florida, I think 50% of the people there weren't born there or more. Rhode Island really is a reflection of America at its best in terms of it being a truly, a truly accepting tapestry of different ethnic backgrounds and cultures. And I find that it's kind of interesting. Rhode Island was founded to escape from the strict intolerance of Massachusetts. And I find that Massachusetts is probably, or Boston especially, still has some of that, uh, you know, judging people by their pedigree. And I think Rhode Island, by contrast, has some of our founding, which is where we kind of accept that this is a refuge of people trying to find a place of, uh, uh, a place of cl where they could uh, be themselves and express their conscience without having to, you know, show their, sh show their, uh, take a blood test. What were his exact words, please? If Tinkin did take a blood test, the results might surprise you. Yes, he whispered it into my ear. Are you related to Mandy Patinkin? Ah. People often ask Mandy Patinkin if he's related to Mark Patinkin. <laughs> and it drives him crazy. You know, he's walking down he's like, the sidewalk and people go, wait a minute. Mandy, you know, are you related to the columnist that Providence? He is my first cousin. He's your first He's cousin. He's my father's brother's son. Can you Mandy. carry a tune? Can I carry a tune? Yeah. He got all the tune genes. <laughs> Mandy Patinkin may claim the screen and stage, but Mark has the printed page here in his homeland. How long are you going to keep doing it? You know, that's a good question. Um, I have, do find myself. Uh, increasingly alone among my peers uh, as not being retired. I right now still like playing the game. It's nice to have a job where you can write whatever you want every day.
Finally tonight, Lila Alphonse is here with a commentary on critical race theory, or CRT as it's become known. You may have noticed them at town council meetings or school committee meetings across the state. People who use their three minutes during the open commentary period to rail against critical race theory, or CRT, even if it isn't on the agenda. It's a hot topic. Recently, a sitting state representative took to Twitter to blame CRT for the loss of her black friend, saying she was sure the only thing she had done to make her friend reject her was be white. At a recent school committee meeting in North Kingstown, some parents said the silent part out loud. CRT and the school administration's planned equity audit would focus on race, they said, defame our national heritage, and cause children to hate their country's foundation. According to an analysis by Education Week, since January 2021, dozens of bills intended to restrict teaching about racism and sexism have been introduced in 37 states. 14 states have formally imposed bans and restrictions. It's no coincidence that these bills were launched after the urgent calls for racial justice in 2020. Critical race theory is actually taught in only one school in Rhode Island, the Roger Williams University School of Law. That's because CRT is a specific graduate level curriculum that examines the intersection of race, history, and American law. What the people at the school committee meetings, and yes, even the sitting congresswoman, are railing against is not critical race theory. They're upset and uncomfortable about the very real parts of U.S. history that cast the race they identify with in a negative light. They're projecting their own fears and biases onto our teachers and our schools. You can't discuss desegregation while glossing over the power structure that made segregation possible. You can't adequately teach the 13th, 14th, or 15th amendments of our Constitution without explaining the three-fifths compromise and why it was made. A lesson on manifest destiny that does not acknowledge the realities of how white settlers displaced indigenous populations is a lesson that is simply incomplete. Racism and discrimination are a horrible part of American history. Refusing to discuss it might make some parents feel better. Ignorance is bliss for a reason. But ignoring part of our history only makes it easier to repeat it. Our thanks to Lila Alphonse. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Good night.